Hello, hello. We are back once again to this edition of NOLA Matters with your host, AJ Strong, and my co-host, Dr. Mark Allen Derry. Hello, it's so nice to be back. Yeah, it has been too long, my friend. It's good to see your face. I know, it has been too long. I, uh, <laughs> we've been doing these live uh, shows at the Ace Hotel. Right. So, uh, which, of course, means that I can't be there for the 5 o'clock Sure. Show. And you uh, were gone for a super long time. Then I was, oh God, yeah, I was, I was, I was traveling for a really long time. That's true. Mm-hmm. It's, so it's really nice to be back. Yes. <laughs> Welcome home. Thank you. It was, uh, I was in Bulgaria doing HIV, or I was in uh, Albania doing HIV work. And then I was in Bulgaria and then I was in, um, yeah, we always doing a lot of work abroad and stuff. <laughs> so it is good to be back. I forgot about all that. Uh, how? <laughs> I just, I don't know. <laughs> Uh, might might be on. a sign on, that I, you have too much going on, right? Or it's it could be that my wife's nickname for me, Spacey McSpaceface, Face, oh. is really real. <laughs> <laughs> I'm going. How come I've I'm never, going with like fifty? You have never heard how that. How come I've never heard that? Spacey McSpaceface Face is I, uh, is her nickname for me. I love it. That That's, comes from Bodie McBoatface. Did you so? And the UK was going to build a brand new ship, like a big warship, and they they were going to uh, let let the people of the UK they were going to crowdsource the name of the uh, of the name of the ship. So they came up with Bodie McBoatface. Oh wow! And they said no. <laughs> <laughs> they named it like the whatever they named it after some admiral. Floaty or McFloatface. Right, right. So, uh, but from uh, Bodie McBoatface came Spacey McSpaceface. Okay. And well, that's it's how, fitting. That's how I ended and up so with now that. I will refer to you as such moving yes, forward. Yes. So. Yes. Welcome uh, <laughs> to this edition of NOLA Matters with AJ Strong and Spacey McSpaceface. That's me. <laughs> uh, we have in our studio today a very special guest, Nikki Mayu. Ba- yeah, that's right, right? Mayu, yes, Bayou. That's yes, right. got it. Nikki Mayu, who is a New Orleans resident, super mom, writer, and ex evangelical. <gasps> and today we're going to be talking about um, a very interesting subject. With a a niche market of listeners. <laughs> no, I think there's a Hopefully lot of expanding. WHIV listeners oh, yeah, who yeah. would appreciate oh, we're gonna, this. Today we're going to be talking about religious deconstruction. Right. Okay, so this is, um, I feel like this is going to be a, a very interesting and intense topic. Bef- before we jump in, I want to quick do this Yes. This little station Please. ID. Um, did you know that WHAV is a volunteer-driven community radio station? We are able to honor independent voices with your support. Stand for human rights and social justice by becoming a member of WHIV today. Monthly memberships are flexible. That could be one, five, ten, twenty dollars per month, whatever works for you. Or represent WHIV with a T-shirt, tank top, fanny pack, and more found on our online store. Go to whivfm.org and click support or store. Again, that is whivfm.org. Thank you for helping us honor independent voices and all wars. Have you seen people wearing WHIV shirts out and about? You know, I don't really go out and about. You'd think that I would, but I am out and about for my job, meaning I am like out of the house and typically in a bar. Right. And then when it's my off time, I hide in my home. Got it. Speaking of your home, can I ask you a question about your home? Yes. Um, I think because it's been such a long time. The um, the last time I was at your home, I broke one of your steps. You did. It was a very weighty event. <laughs> well, <And laughs> look, the steps were and I just barely <laughs> hanging on by a thread. To be I know fair, you, you just stepped in the right place at the right time, <laughs> or wrong. And, or wrong. And, yeah. uh, and so everything got fixed up? 
Yeah, I I fixed the stairs. I I built new did, stairs. Oh, did you really? Yeah. Oh, so you just you just so that broken step was the impetus to to build to a brand new set of stairs. Yes. Mm-hmm. And you know what? It is not an easy task. Oh, is it? Is it easier? Uh, it looks easier than it really is. It looks super easy when I looked it up on YouTube. You just get some wood. You just hammer yes, it so in. Get some wood. Yeah. Right. Put them together like. Right. In little like step like shapes. Right. No. What, what, what was the uh, what happened? Well, <laughs> um, I, I don't want to go down this rabbit, but like just like real quickly. Like, well, what happened was I spent the better part of an, of an entire day fastening the stringer, which is the side piece, the side uh, piece of, yeah, of each course. Yeah, that's fastening like that anchor. to the house. Exactly. Oh, yeah, Getting it all nice and level. And, and then it, I had these planks. I was going to just finish that out the next morning. And then it rained <laughs> like. So bad that night. I sh- maybe should have checked my weather app before I did that. And it completely just kind of like washed away the the stabilizing ground really? like it, underneath it, like the it, stairs. It, lift, like it, moved? it just, yeah, everything just sort of filtered away. And when I came out, the stairs were like very sad. So what you need is a YouTube tutorial on how to build steps in Louisiana. Yeah, <laughs> South Louisiana. in a swamp, yeah. I ended up um, just do- <laughs> taking <laughs> what? I ended up what? taking some they're not cinder blocks but they're like patio blocks. Mm-hmm. Right. Like the very flat cement right. square right, right. and just like um, hammering them under the front of the stairs <laughs> in a very angry sort of way. And then I don't want to say too much on here, but I still don't have handrails because the holes that I dug for the handrail post filled with mud. And I was like, you know what? That's it. People are just going to have to work on their balance. Yeah. I did not <laughs> mean to, to bring on, something. I going to no play idea. on my PlayStation. I had Screw no, this. <laughs> no idea this was. So there's a, so that's still a lingering yeah, there That's are the, there are stairs. There just there are no handrails. Got on the it. Stairs. Got it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I know that I can get cited by the city for that. So yeah, probably gonna have to go home and redig those holes now. Yeah. Thanks, <laughs> space mix, space space. <laughs> I'm right. here for you, baby. <laughs> yeah. Uh huh. Okay, should we dive in? Yes. All let's right. deconstruct so, religion. So let's start um, with a very generally, Nikki, if you wouldn't mind maybe giving us a brief explanation for our listeners, what is religious deconstruction? Um, yeah, so the religious deconstruction is the process of examining, uh, critically examining your own religious beliefs. Very often... This is done after a very long time in the religion, either having been brought up from birth in the religion or um, converting and and being in the religion for a long time. It doesn't have to be, but it often is. So it's the process of critically examining your own beliefs and your own religious values and your relationship to your religion and and kind of either recommitting or departing from that faith as a result of that process okay so it's kind of the word deconstruction it's it's kind of like really pulling it apart and Mm -hmm. looking at every piece of it instead of just sort of like blindly following it because someone else told you to is that sort of okay yeah and i'm trying to give i'm trying to give a really objective and a really value neutral definition for that sure because i don't want to give the impression that 
religious deconstruction always results in deconversion. Yeah. It did for me and it did, it does for many, many of the people in, in like the circles that I talk to about this, but those are also the people more likely to talk about it and continue talking about it. If they left their religion, if someone recommits to their religion and finds that that is the right path for them, you know, they're not as likely to like follow the, religious deconstruction hashtag you know sure um so so that makes sense yeah do you would you do you know if you i don't know if you have an educated guess on the percentage of people who when they deconstruct decide to stay versus decide to walk away are there any statistics on that i don't i well there might be there's not that i'm aware of um and that's partially because recognizing um, religious trauma syndrome is still very, very new. Religious trauma syndrome. Yeah. I love it. Which I'm not sure if that, I actually don't, I'm, I'm not, I don't have a psychology background. Um, mm-hmm. I don't have a degree in, in that or. Well, I have a medical degree. Okay. So, uh, so, so right now, uh, between the three of us, I can, I can, I can answer some of these questions. Yeah. So I know, um, I don't know if it has been officially added to like the DSM or is officially recognized, but I'm I know look it up right now. I know that there is a big push from um, from my community and from a lot of people to have it recognized. And um, Dr. Uh, Marlene Wynell, who wrote a book called uh, "Leaving the Fold," is kind of considered one of the pioneers of that research on the effects of re- of, of religious trauma for people that have left authoritarian and um and harmful religion so it's basically the the idea that that some religious expressions can very much inflict trauma on their congregants and can inflict spiritual abuse on people that leaves them with a variety of like mental health concerns that um that they didn't have before entering that religion. Mm-hmm. Um, oftentimes the, the most common ones that I see when I talk to people and the ones that have been most pre- prevalent in my life are like generalized anxiety. In my case, I had um, pretty significant obsessive compulsive disorder as a, a young person um, that I feel like was very much tied to my religious experiences mm-hmm. and the way that um, doctrine and dogma was presented to me. Okay. Well, can I can I just say that I I just think that that is so like I don't know why it never occurred to me until you just said it. Yeah, but religious trauma syndrome is is real. Like that is, and it's only going to be you know, and it's it's too bad that we have to kind of make it official by medicalizing it. Mm-hmm. You know, by putting it in the DSM, whatever five or six or whatever. There, I, I see here that she's been trying. She tried to get it in the DSM five R, which is the revised version of DSM. Mm-hmm. So maybe it'll be in the DSM six, but. The idea, well, first of all, this is very threatening to the medical patriarchy, which is yeah. what I do a lot of re- my personal research in is looking at discrimination in, in, uh, in medicine, looking at uh, racism, trans and homophobia and misogyny. And it runs very, very deep mm-hmm. because there's a strong patriarchy in, in health care and healthcare delivery. Yeah, absolutely. But religion is very much a great part of that mm-hmm. uh, because uh, obviously it's a lot of the religious dogma that drives a lot of these docs to think these old 19th century beliefs of stuff, you know, um, and as an HIV doctor, I hear a lot about it, especially when I travel around 
northern Louisiana or uh, uh, some of the more rural parts of town or of the state. But that being said, it is, you know, and you know who writes about this is Richard Dawkins writes about this a lot. And he writes about like, he thinks it's child abuse to like force Judaism or Christianity onto a child, right? And, 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 you know, as opposed, I think calling it child abuse is a little strong, but, you know, we would never force a child to choose between being a Democrat or Republican, Mm -hmm. but we have a child and we force upon them a religious belief and that's usually his his typical way that he talks about religion would you so you think that using the words child abuse is a little that's a little too far i I mean i understand where he's going with it yeah i mean i see child abuse and here's where i can say i'm not a psychiatrist (laughs) (laughs) but i i mean yes you know is it violent is it trauma you know is it like physical abuse versus sexual abuse versus that psychological abuse i mean I, I looking at it from your the way that you're now kind of having me think about it and as I'm speaking out loud about it, I, I would say that it probably is child yeah, abuse. Yeah, I, I have I'm actually myself used those words to describe it just from my own personal experience growing up in the environment. And so, and I haven't thought about the trauma portion of it as an adult, but now that we're talking about it, I can acknowledge that even on the way over here, I was like freaking myself out yeah. because it's, it's ingrained. It was etched into my brain at such, such a young age. Yeah. The whole idea of, you know, if you're doing wrong, you're going to burn in a lake of fire forever. Even as an adult, when I, I can look at myself in the mirror and say, no, I don't believe that. But somewhere in my body, it's stored. So when I, when I was on my way here, knowing that we're going to talk about this, I was like having a yeah. reaction yeah, I'm 40 and, years old. Yeah, and that's that. That's, what you're that's describing. Triggering. That's child abuse. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah that, that's anxiety. Go ahead. Yeah, what you're describing um, is relates to a, a philosophical argument called Pascal's Wager. Are you familiar with that? I'm not. It's, um, it's a centuries-old, like, theological kind of argument that... Sorry. <laughs> that... Um, that basically everyone bets with their life on whether or not God is real. And at the time in, in mm -hmm. Pascal's experience, like the only God that you could be talking, conceivably be talking about was the Christian God. So you bet with your life that God is either real or not. And he basically concludes, although he did say he, he didn't, he did not intend this, this like logical exercise to necessarily compel people to belief, but he logically concludes that, we should all bet we should all be Christians. We should all err on the side of believing in God because the possible consequences of being wrong are so inconceivably um, terrible. Like the, the hell is the worst possible thing you can imagine uh, physically, cognitively, all of that. So we should all err on the side of being Christians because if we're wrong, we have lost the biggest gamble there is. And so for me, revisiting Pascal's wager with which I was raised um, like I learned about that concept very very early in life I remember it being on tracks that I would like hand out to people um, as like a young person these like chick tracks that are that Hold are on, a, what is a buck wild what are we thing. Talk, what are we talking about? They're tracks. evangelical tracks. They're like, little booklets. Like little pamphlets. They're little. Sort of. They're like. Um, they're like. Yeah, the Jews the worst, don't do this. They're so. like the worst zine you can imagine. <laughs> um, and you so pass that out to people? You pass them out to people. Um, I had a, I had a best friend growing up that would, when we went to the grocery store with her, 
with her mom, she would give each of us a track and we were supposed to like hand it out to someone in the grocery store while we were shopping or hand it to the cashier. Yeah. And they, they had varying levels <laughs> of harmfulness. Um, some way worse than others, all of them not great, but, but yeah, like my, my kind of decision moment in my deconversion came when I revisited that idea of Pascal's wager and realized that like for me, the, first of all, Pascal's wager really just means that the scariest hell wins. So like you just think you find the religion with the worst hell, which I might argue might be Christianity. Mm -hmm. And that's the one you go with, which is kind of a, a crazy way to approach religion. But for me, it, it was like the, the consequence of continuing in Christianity, denying my authentic self, um, denying my queerness, denying parts of my identity and my autonomy and my inner voice, like that became the worst outcome. Mm-hmm. And it shifted for me. And when it shifted, I was able to be comfortable walking away. Not that I still don't occasionally experience like, real panic attacks thinking about those things because, um, because of religious trauma. (laughs) Yeah. It's so many things are popping up in my head right now. This could, we could go on for Uh, hours and hours. And we've, we, and it's not the first time that we've had guests come back on to, to, to finish conversations. Yeah. So, but yeah, can you do the, you want to do station ID? You don't have to read. Yeah, you just say. If you're tuning in, you're listening to 102.3 WHIV. <laughs> this is Health is a Human Right. It's so great to be back. I'm here with AJ. Thank you, AJ, for being here. It's such a pleasure to be here. And it was Nikki? Nikki. Nikki mm-hmm. Boudreaux? <laughs> no, a different Cajun name. Uh, Nikki Mayu. Nikki Mayu, sorry. <laughs> no, you're fine. And Nikki Mayu, we're sitting and we're talking about religious deconstruction. Can I say one thing and then yeah, I will? Yeah, yeah. Because I promised you I was going to be a bug on the wall, but maybe I no, maybe we, over. No, we value your opinion. <laughs> so okay. can I tell you about Mark Allen's wager? Yes, yeah, absolutely. Okay. So here's Mark Allen's wager. Mark Allen's wager is this, is in my most spaciest of spacey thoughts and comments and and consideration especially when i was in high school and i was you know doing uh, uh smoking a lot uh and uh experiencing alternative consciousnesses and stuff one of them was well what if and mark allen's wager is what if hell is real right let's just let's mm-hmm. start with the premise that hell is real and what if the experience that we're having right now is hell mm-hmm. right it's it certainly can feel okay. that way right and then <laughs> so what i did was like well, if that's the case, I'm going to make the best out of this. <laughs> like, you know, I, I, uh, you know, I don't know about this eternity thing and this, you know, the the way that the environment is changing now, you know, it feels like we're burning up all the time. Yeah. But uh, I, you know, for me, my my conversion came. We were just starting to say this right before we went off. Uh, we came on air. Was when I took my first class in evolution, and it occurred to me that there was the lies that were told to me in, in my very fundamental and very very religious Jewish upbringing. Like, you know, my whole family from Israel to Morocco to to Paris to Montreal and all between are complete Orthodox Jews. And I'm the only one. My brother and I are actually the ones that stepped out of that, you know, largely because of my first class in evolution, which Mm -hmm. is I understand why the religious folks don't want people to learn about evolution. That's why they have intelligent design because they don't want people to know about these, you know, because once it realized that there was actually science behind it. But anyway, I I mentioned all that. That was just part of my and it happened at a younger age. And then I also would always kind of tease people and say, well, we're living in hell right now. And that was during the Re- <laughs> that was during the Reagan and Bush era, uh, and uh, anyway, that's that's Mark Allen's uh, yeah. uh, uh, wager. No, I think I think that's a good way to put it though, because everyone 
everyone that that is interested in in critically examining their belief system has to create their own wager. You have to acknowledge what the wager is for you and what the stakes are for you. Yes. Um, and and like lo- lots and lots of people don't do that. And lots and, and I'm realizing and, and trying to recognize and honor that for for many people. Um, I'll just speak from like the Christian experience because that's what I come from. But for many people, like Christianity has not been as harmful of a force in their lives as it was in mine. Um, And that can be due to a lot of reasons. Like most of the folks I know that don't have this experience, like always kind of found a way to integrate Christianity into the rest of their lives and have kind of compartmentalized it to some extent, extent, or maybe it was always more of a cultural thing that connected them to their family and their community rather than an extremely devout spiritual thing. But the, the people that I find who are most likely to come around to deconstruction and to very often walk away are those of us that like took it the most seriously and the most literally Hmm. and kept ourselves up at age six, seven, (laughs) eight, nine, thinking about these concepts, thinking about, existential eternal consequences for our actions um it that it just kind of lends you to that path yeah, I, w- I was also and i thought what you were about to say because i i know aj i think you've talked we've talked about this on air before also i would imagine that there's a large part of the folks that um that undergo some sort of religious deconstruction are people that actually the religion actually pushes away from the religion. So in particular, queer folk, mm-hmm. I would imagine, um, or people who have nothing to gain or who feel ostracized, ostracized from, from the religion. And, yeah. and, and certainly I, I think that obviously the, the two of you, I mean, I'm this is straight gender dude, so I don't have much to say in that, but the two of you, I would imagine would have a lot to say. And I know that we've talked about, mm-hmm. we've, you know, talked about this on and off again. Cause you know, you grew up in uh, in the Northern part of the country. Mm-hmm. Yeah, definitely. That, that's a big part of it. Yeah, <laughs> um, it is. Make, I mean, makes yeah. it difficult. Yeah, it makes it. Uh, I mean, how did you square that circle? I mean, because I, I know that we. You told me. I think I, you said that you knew at five or six. Yeah, four or five years old. And I then, and then you were yeah, I knew growing I up in this house, that, right? And then the religion is just 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 coming down on you yeah it wasn't so much from my mother my mom my mom was just kind of trying to you know follow suit and do the best that she could my dad wasn't in the picture but it was primarily from my 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 grandmother so my mom's mom and her and that side of the family they're um, very very religious people my uncle was the like the the pastor in the church we were very had a very large presence in the church you know Um, so, uh, it was, um, to say that it was challenging does not even scratch the surface. It was, it was like mentally damaging, scarring. That's the trauma part. yeah, Yeah. Right. To, to be, to try to be something that I was not, not only from a, gender and sexuality standpoint but also from a religious standpoint and constantly having that message of if i don't get better if i don't pray to god to fix me i am actually going to be on fire for all eternity if that's not a when you're um like five or six or seven years old that's not a something that you need to be even 
thinking about nobody needs to be thinking about that but when you're a little kid it's really hard to even grasp what that means and it's terrifying yeah um and even up you know i'm thinking about when i first started my physical transition in the back of my mind was this nagging voice like are you doing the quote-unquote right thing right now or are you going to pay the price later Mm -hmm. i didn't really acknowledge it but it was there like this chewing little voice in the back of my mind and after i had made the decision to move forward with my transition i had made a couple appointments with therapists which five six years ago you you had to do that still you had to go see a therapist (laughs) before you could um pursue hormone therapy after i made those appointments Shortly thereafter, I got into a car wreck where I almost died. And while I was in the hospital, lying in the hospital bed, my sister called me. And I knew what she was going to say or what she was going to ask me um, because I had already shared with her that I was going to transition. And while I was in the hospital bed recovering from this accident, she called me and she asked me, do you think that God is punishing you because you decided to transition? And you know what I said? Yeah. I do. Why did you answer yes? Because that's what I thought. Oh, really? Yeah. You oh, you believed in it. I did. Oh my goodness. I for uh for I mean, granted I was on a lot of drugs in the hospital. Of I mean, they I, were we just talked like, about pump, your injury like before. I thought they were yeah. I also thought they were trying to turn me into a horse and I vocalized that. <laughs> that so was a real concern. I wasn't really but you know, I that thought was there for me and it was also there for my younger sister enough for her to call me and ask me about it. Yeah. And she's my, my younger sister is not a religious right. person. Either. But you see, you see to a large degree, religion works like that. I mean, like it reminds me of what happened after Katrina, right? You had like Falwell being like, well, you know, Katrina happened because the gays were marching through the streets. Cause it was, uh, it wasn't pride weekend that weekend. It was, um, decadence. decadence. Right. And so, you know, I, I, you know, reminds me of, sorry, I was, uh, on a, I was working as a doctor at a festival and I went with a friend of mine down to go, uh, wakeboarding and there were a bunch of, uh, Mormons. It was, it was in Utah and there were a bunch of Mormons on this boat and they were, we all got to talking and it became very clear that I was only atheists and they were all very hardcore, uh, um, uh, uh, Mormons. And we got into a very bitter discussion and it was my turn to get on the wakeboard. I got on the wakeboard. I was going out for maybe about three or four minutes and I wiped out so hard. I developed a concussion and I was like literally out of it for like 24 hours. I was experiencing significant dizziness and stuff. And when I got back on the boat, I was super dizzy and I could see them all looking at me and they had that same, they were like, mm-hmm. see, dude, God punished you. You mm. spoke poorly about God. And I just, and I didn't feel well enough to like, be like, F you guys. Mm-hmm. I just fell. Yeah. You know? yeah. It's, that's such it's a, a very convenient, it's such a dangerous brain. game to yes, play. Cause yes, no one, yes. um, yes. folks, folks who are saying that no one, they, they no are not turning truth. around and saying if their pastor gets in a car accident, well, you know, yeah. maybe God was punishing you for teaching bad theology. Like yeah. it, it doesn't <laughs> right. go. Yeah, yeah. No, it's yeah. it's, an it's incredible, very one sided. Yeah. Uh, Is there a name for that? Are there like theologists must or people who study so, religion have to, have to have named that phenomenon that religious people will do that quickly. They'll be like, well, because what you were doing did not fall into the way that I think about things. Therefore, God's punishing you there. I'm sure there is. It's not coming to me at the moment, or maybe I just don't know it. I, it's related to something that I've written about recently. I think it's related, though, the idea of um, the Barnum effect. 
So I've I've written like P.T. Barnum, mm-hmm, okay. like P.T. Barnum name for the showman. Um, but I think it's related to this idea. I've written a, a series of little mini essays about um, charismatic faith expressions and cold reading techniques that psychics and mediums use. And so one of the techniques used in that is called the Barnum effect. And it means that we tend to, when, when someone tells us something very generalized about our personality or our life, we tend to feel like it is much more specific than it actually is. Yes. And especially if we're invested in believing it, especially if the person relaying the message has an air of confidence. So, um, I, unfortunately, I'm so sorry. Um, when, when I was a Christian, I was in charismatic faith expressions for a long time. And during worship services, I would often pray over people and, and occasionally like prophesy over people or give what's called like words of knowledge or words, words from the Lord where, where I essentially cold read them without realizing that I was doing it. Cause you can cold read people without subconsciously. And so I would, pray very generalized things or concepts that would come into my head that people internalize as being highly specific to them. And so that's what that makes me think of is like, um, it's, that's a very general random thing that happened to you that someone is assigning it to be an incredibly specific cause and effect that, um, you know, that the, the listener is going to interpret based on their own indoctrination or lack thereof. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's how, you know, I would imagine. And I, I love all my fortune teller and tarot card readers and all you people. I, I love all of you all. And certainly <laughs> this is, you know, I'm not denigrating anybody. But, you know, like you said, I, this, the mediums and what have you, they, well, you're going to meet somebody blonde. Oh, yeah, I just met a blonde, you know, like, yeah. and they, they go on and, and they are able to find that information. And, and I, you know, I think that that's how that works. And, and it, 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 did you coin that term or is that term, is that a... No, no, that's a, that's just a term. It's also called the, I think the official term is the forum effect, something with an F. But it's it's also called the Barnum effect because it was the person that was researching it noticed noticed it at like um, Barnum and Bailey shows or something to that effect. But yeah, I think I think the majority of people that like both both in Christian expressions and in like all manner of New Agey uh, spirituality, I think the vast majority of them don't have any ill will and are not trying to manipulate people. I think the majority of them like I did, like sincerely believe that what they were doing was supernatural because the way that they were taught to read on the new agey end or pray for people on the, on the Christian end is learning cold reading techniques without realizing it. So when you sit, when you're taught to sit with someone in prayer and sit, so I, I was taught to like sit in silence with the person and clear my mind and like see what God brings to the surface. But when I'm doing that, my brain is going to generate things that come to my mind based on what I perceive about that person. So I'm going to subconsciously in the, in the immediate moment in, in the moment, I'm going right. to subconsciously notice if they're, if they have maintained eye contact with me, if they seem nervous, if their hands are shaking, if they, you know, if their shoulders are hunched, all of these things that, that, tell like tell our lizard brain how to react and and read other people 
that's going to be what comes to the surface. And then it's going to feel very apt. Um, I'm also like when I was in, in my church, like more often than not, I know that person. So I'm also doing a little bit of hot reading (laughs) unintentionally. And I have in the back of my mind, all the things I know about that person's life that's going to come to the surface. Mm -hmm. And, and, and and what do you, you're, I, I think when you first started describing what you were doing, I just assumed you guys were all praying in unison, but you're saying you're praying like you're having like a meditation service or and before you answer, let me just uh-huh. say this. If you're tuned in, you are listening to 102.3 WHIV. This is Health is a Human Rights. Uh, my name is Mark Allendarian. It's a great honor to be back here with my co-host, AJ Strong. Thank you, AJ. AJ has this seat every second uh, Monday of the month, and it's great to be back here. Uh, we also have with us uh, Nikki Mayu, who's talking to us about religious deconstruction. So are you like having a meditation session or uh, somebody who didn't grow up in the Christian faith? Uh, yeah. Help me so understand what you're explaining. The way this would happen um, is at a, a charismatic Christian church service. Typically the service, there'll be a sermon. There'll be a lot of lead up with other things. There'll be a sermon. And at the end of the service, there will be um, an altar call. Yes. I've, that's happened okay. twice where so, I, they said that like when I was there, they're like, dude, they're calling you to the altar. So yeah, yes. I'm sure they did. <laughs> um, <laughs> so there'll be an altar call, which means that a, a, a worship band typically will come up and play really emotive music. Um, lots of like emotional minor chords and things like that and very atmospheric and they will just kind of and sometimes they will um they'll kind of loop a chorus of a worship song and that gets kind of trance-like so it'll be a a lyric like nothing's floating to my mind right now but it'll be a lyric Mm -hmm. that they'll just kind of keep going over and over and then they'll usually ask um church members to come a couple church members to come and stand up at the front of the altar and be available if other congregants want to come and receive prayer. And then when you do that, you would like approach the person and usually just stand there, but sometimes like go off some somewhere else in the sanctuary. That's a little more private and you might hold hands. If the, if I'm praying for you, I might place a hand on your shoulder and we'll just kind of like sit there silently until, until the person that's praying feels like they receive a message from God and then they'll relay it. And the way that I was taught to do that was there's, there's a, um, someone had to remind me this cause it was deep in my memory and I forgot it, but there are guidelines that you're given when you're taught this type of ministry is what it's referred to. And one of the rules is, uh, no, no mates, no dates, no babies. So I was just about to go there. Mm-hmm. I was going to ask about that. So that the, these are guidelines. And that's a good guideline. It's, I think it's a great guideline. Right. Um, they're guidelines put in place that are meant to allow for human error and allow allow the experience to stay as like safe and encouraging as possible. And what a Christian would say is that like this gift, this ministry, this gift of prophecy is meant to encourage God's church. Right. So you should, that was another guideline is that all of the things I pray over people should be encouraging and affirming of their journey. It should not be an opportunity to condemn anyone. So what I was going to ask is, mm-hmm. is th- what you just described to me is so worrisome for like a, a power abuse and, uh, yes. and, yes. and, 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 
because you got somebody who's vulnerable versus somebody who is a leader of the of the church, let's say. And I can see that power being so easily abused in a physical, uh, sexual, and or mental sort of uh, a manner. Yeah. Which is obviously where no mates, no dates, no babies come from. Yeah, I'm I'm describing guidelines that I feel like are best practice, like best best case scenario, this is how it happens, and hopefully it can be a really lovely experience. Like, like, it, it can be very affirming and very encouraging. But when those practices are not adhered to and when people don't have, um, when people have, like, other agendas, it can be one of the most abusive practices I know of. Sure. Let's like look I, at the Catholic Church. Yeah. I, um, I gave... Sorry. I had to go there. I gave, like, <laughs> semi-serious consideration to going through with my wedding because a charismatic friend, after meeting my fiance, told me that, like, she just didn't have a piece from God about him for me. Oh. And thank Thank science that I didn't (laughs) Um, because we're still very happily married 10 years later. Um, And he, he has also deconstructed on a similar path. He was a pastor at the time. Um, So I was a pastor's wife, but it, but it, it shook me in the same way that AJ, that you described that moment in the hospital, this, this person who to me, I, I love this person dearly. She is still a dear friend. At the time, I considered her to have incredible spiritual authority over me. Not over me. Or maybe maybe that's appropriate. Maybe that's a Freudian. <laughs> sure. Spiritual authority over me. And I felt her to be very wise and to have a very strong connection to God. So when she didn't have peace about it, like that threw it, it, all the certainty I had until that point. Like it threw it all under the bus. And it was a real, like I had a genuine panic attack over that. See, and to me, this speaks to why religion is so, I'm going to just say bad. Harmful. Right? Harmful. Thank you. Mm-hmm. Thank you. Toxic. Right. Toxic. Because you can have, uh, the, you could, people, people, the, not they can abuse it. They do abuse that. Like, it's, mm-hmm. you show me a human being who's not given that level of power, who's going to, or authority and walk away with it. I mean, most people, I, I'm not saying all religious expression is bad. I, I'm not saying all people who practice religion is bad, but I'm going to say that a lot of it is. Yeah. You know, mm-hmm. I, I, I'm going to say the Catholic Church, you know, you look at all the, you, and I was going to ask you, what about these pastors that, what are they called? Prosperity pastors? You know, these guys, prosperity gospel, prosperity gospel, Mm -hmm. like it is the most inane thing. I mean, Jesus said that it's harder for a camel to walk through an eye of a needle than it is for a rich man to get into, uh, into heaven. Mm -hmm. Did I quote that right? That's probably the only Bible quote I actually know. (laughs) Yeah, it's a great job. Um, With my fading memory, (laughs) as I haven't read it in a really long time. Um, Yeah, I think, you know, I also like, I don't. I will never say that all religion is harmful. I don't believe that. And I believe that people of all faith expressions can engage for themselves in a healthy way with them. But I also believe in holding people to task for the way that their religious systems oppress others. Mm -hmm. So like my, you know, my cultural Christian friend who does not seem to carry the trauma that I do from Christianity, like I'm still going to take that friend to task on the fact that her church is actively voting, you know, to strip rights away from from the queer community. Like, you still need to be held to task for 
for upholding the human rights of everyone. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's a delicate balance. It's a really delicate balance. And it's really... It's become more delicate. <laughs> yeah. Delicate as of late. Each passing day. Yeah, yeah. And it's it feels scary to say or to critique because I think there is, like to use that term, religious trauma syndrome feels edgy in a way because there is such a generalized assumption that mainstream religion is essentially benign. Like it may not be for you and it may not be, um, you know, it may not be the best thing in the world, but it's essentially benign. And to, to critique it and say that there are actually things existing in the, the very theology of this expression that, um, that shame people and that create anxiety, like anxiety conditions in people, um, is, feels like a dangerous thing to say sometimes. Mm-hmm. Well, I mean, I, I, I but I mean, you're, you, I, I don't mean to be, uh, offensive here, but you're, you're, how do you have it both ways? You're saying it, but then you're also then saying that you don't feel right saying it. I'm saying that I think individual people can have healthy relationships. Uh, that, yes, I with, agree with you with, on that. With almost any faith expression, in my experience that I've seen, but the 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 health of their like like they might have a healthy personal relationship to it, but that very well may be because they hold a ton of privilege within that. Yes. And mm-hmm. they don't ever have to confront the ways that their doctrine and their dogma oppresses other people. Right. That's mm-hmm. what I was saying. So that's what I'm saying. Right. Right. Yeah. Yes. I agree with that because that's what I was saying a little earlier was that, that the, when you were saying the, that the people who deconstruct religion, mm-hmm. at least in your community that you're aware of have, have, be, have been people who were the most dogmatic about it. Yeah. And where I thought you were going to say was, I thought it was the people who were oppressed by religion. Right. That's where I thought you were initially going to say, because what that leaves are the people who are actually gaining from it. Because I look at people, they're mm-hmm. perfectly lovely people. Uh, they get married in the church. They, you know, but these are all these are all people that, you know, they they're uh, cis, they're 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 straight. Uh, they may be white, white, they may be black, you know, whatever. But still that these are privileged. These are individuals that where they the, the belief system never really bumped up against um any any of their salient parts of their identity right yeah yeah um yeah were you about to say something okay so (laughs) it's so easy for us to go off on to tangent but i do we have we have only about 15 minutes left so i i really want to get into the actual deconstruction part of of this topic and and how Mm -hmm. you came to that and how you yourself deconstructed and then talk a bit about the writing that you do sure yeah um so the, the real Cliff Notes version is that um, I was devout my whole life and married a pastor in a, f- a fairly left-leaning kind of social justice Christian expression. Um, and a couple years into our marriage, like, really started to... I had always known I was queer, um, pansexual. I had always always known that since like my earliest memories, but was not a thing that I could accept about myself. Or I, I was taught that the way I needed to, uh, integrate that is that I, it was sexual sin would be a thing I struggled with. So it was like something separate from my identity. This is a behavior that I could be tempted to engage in. But since I was, since I am pansexual and it, and I was like, attracted to opposite gender individuals, it was not something that I 
had to confront necessarily. Like I had a lot of privilege with that. And I did find a, um, a lovely cis man that I fell in love with and married. Um, but that didn't sit right with me. It never sat right with me. It sat less and less right with me as I moved through adulthood. So once, once I acknowledge like this is who I am, this is not something I can pray away. And I actually am not okay with my church's teachings about how queer people should be treated. It started like kind of an avalanche of like, okay, what, like that felt pretty good to accept that, like that felt true and real and like relieved a lot of my anxiety. Like what else could I examine? What else needs to be examined that I have kind of forced myself to do theological gymnastics about um, my whole life? And so from there, it was like kind of step by step, these building blocks of Christian faith that I examined and, and walked away from. So then it was like, I don't actually think that the Bible is the inerrant word of God. Okay, that opens up a whole, I don't actually <laughs> believe in hell. Okay, I am not sure of this, 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 and this. And eventually you get so far, like, once, once you say the Bible is not the inerrant word of God, you're not a Christian to a lot of people. Mm-hmm. Once you say, as Rob Bell can attest, once you say that hell might not be real, you're not a Christian to a lot of people. You isolate various degrees of, of Christians the further you go. Eventually, after several years and after having my first kiddo and having to really confront, like, are we going to say bedtime prayers? Like you have to decide like tomorrow. Um, (laughs) Once I got there, I eventually got to a place where I was like, I, I don't believe I have not enough of these beliefs left to call myself a Christian anymore. And that was really scary at first. Um, But the longer, and I kind of like gave myself, I kind of made um, like had an imaginary conversation with God where I was like, I I am bringing my whole self to this journey. I am showing up with no expectations and no, um, no vested interests. I like, I'm sincerely seeking a relationship with you if you exist. And I'm sincerely following my inner voice. And like, there's just, there was just no answer ever. There was no, I was kind of taught that like when you, you're the one sheep, that parable about like the one lost sheep that Mm -hmm. Jesus will go and, um, leave the, the hundred to go and find the one. And so I was like, I'm, I'm going to keep pursuing this. I'm going to keep examining things. And if God wants me back, he can come get me. Like he can come get me. Mm -hmm. And, um, and if he wants me back, he can still come get me. That's why I call myself an agnostic and not an atheist. Cause I leave that door open. But, but until then, um, the path of, of being an agnostic feels incredibly good. Um, and how, how long has it been? About seven years. Okay. And when you started going through that process, had your husband yet started deconstructing or who was first i was first you were and then so you had to break the news to your husband who was a pastor who was a pastor at the time of a very small (laughs) a very small like punk house church okay is he he, i mean he is not a pastor anymore he's a tattooer now (laughs) he's a a beautiful artist um he's cool i've met him yeah he's very cool he's a good guy um so yeah when i uh I guess like when I told him that I was seriously having doubts that might end up with me not being a Christian anymore, 
um, Mark in like one of the most affirming conversations I've ever had told me like, well, Nikki, in all of our conversations, like you had an, like you believed in a God, your image of God is someone who hates you and like hates who you are and is, is waiting to punish you. So anything that you arrive at is better than that. Um, and I will support any belief system that you arrive at that is not one where you think God exists and he hates you. Mm. And that was the most supportive um, thing he could have possibly said and allowed me to feel safe to deconstruct without thinking that my marriage was going to implode, mm-hmm. <laughs> which it very often does when <laughs> when married couples yeah. like, go through this and one sure. partner is on board and one isn't. Sure. Um, but a few years after that, he also like started examining his own beliefs and kind of we wound up at similar places. Mm-hmm. Can I ask what would you know? I, I I do see a utility. I'm not I'm not a parent, so I'm speaking with somebody mm-hmm. who's not a parent. But is is there a utility to do like some positive affirmations instead of bed night prayers? Or yeah, we we don't do anything at bedtime. Um, but like one kind of parallel thing that that we do is uh, we use the language of like values a lot with our kids who are three and seven. So in place of talking about like dogmatic beliefs, we talk about values and kind of circles of values. So we talk about values that like our, our society has. And then like within that values that our community has and within that values that our family has chosen. And then we communicate to the seven year old, at least that um, you are responsible for deciding like what your personal values are going to be in life. And so she's, she's really taken that on. She told us very, like when she was five, she was like, sharing is a value of mine (laughs) and, and like says that and really like tags that when she exhibits that behavior, she's like, I'm doing this because sharing is a value. And so that's been really great. And that's, it's kind of, there, there's a real fear. There, there is a real fear imparted to you in authoritarian Christianity that if you leave the path, you're going to become a monster. You're going to become an amoral sociopath. Uh, people say that to me all the time when they find yeah. out that I'm an atheist. They're like, well, you're, you're like a moral dude. Yeah. Where, Where does you your get, morality you, come th- from? I, that is exactly what mm-hmm. they say. Where does your morality come from? I'm like, I don't know. Like walking upright, other being, sources, being, <laughs> breathing, you know, yeah, like right. living life. Yeah. So that was like really scary, and scary as an as a human, and scary as a parent, because it's like, okay, like I, I hope this isn't true. And and what I've found is that I feel like I have become a more moral person as an agnostic because I feel the full weight of my decisions. Um, because when I harm someone. I can't just go to a deity and and pray a prayer and ask for forgiveness and have my slate wiped clean. I have to actually make amends with the person I harmed. I have to live with the decisions I make. I have to live with the consequences of my actions in a way that I wasn't taught to do as a Christian. Mm-hmm. And I do think um, something came to my mind one time that uh, my uncle, who is the pastor of our church, said, and it's it really hit me hard and it stuck with me, but he said that um, for those of us who are saved, 
who have accepted Jesus into our hearts and are Christians, this life here on earth is as bad as it's going to get. It's only going to get better. But for those people who are not saved, who refuse to accept Jesus into their heart and become Christians, life on here, this is as good as it's going to get for you. And it's, it's going to get worse and worse and worse. Mm-hmm. And it's never going to end. And uh, I learned that when I was 12. And it scarred me. And so I'm thinking about how I live my life now as an adult and what you're, you were just saying and it, how it makes you live it makes you live in a different way and with a different set of values and they come from within. They come from within and through your own life experiences and the ways that you've learned and from the mistakes that you've made. And it, I, I don't want to live my life believing that this place is so terrible that th- this essentially what he was essentially telling me is that th- for me because I was a Christian this life here is hell this is hell on earth and it's only going to get better mm-hmm. but when I think about the way that a lot of times values I'm thinking about only the people in my own family but the values of the Christian people in my family sort of align with the same um, uh, uh, values of people the who framework. don't who yeah who don't care about the environment say Mm-hmm. Because why would you? We're uh, Jesus is coming back soon. He's going to just snatch us up and mm-hmm. take us into heaven. And we don't have to care about this earth because this earth is not going to be here forever. And so, you know, I see this a lot in my family where there's a there's a serious lack of regard for the earth and environmental issues because it feels like they almost hate this life here and they can't wait to get out of here. You know, I remember being at a funeral for my uncle and one of my aunts made a comment and she was joking, but again, it stuck with me. <laughs> and she said, you know, I I didn't think it would happen, but he beat me to heaven. He, you know, he beat yeah. me there. Like they're all just racing to get there. They can't wait to get out of this earth, you know, this earth suit on this earth life that they just loathe so much you know they're looking was a popular late 90s christian band (laughs) by the way (laughs) i think i knew that yeah Um, along with jars of clay so many yeah but yeah you know so you you your views change and they come from a different place and i think for me it come it very much comes from that wanting to be here and wanting to be in this life and valuing this life and not feeling like this is just the worst thing that's ever going to happen isn't that like isn't there like a a a, um a belief within some forms of christianity about something called the end times oh yeah uh yeah okay so all about the end times (laughs) and are like like our pulses are racing i I just like like, walk into like a i'm so glad that you're a doctor mark allen i'm about to pass out no that's a huge thing um which was a big part of my, a lot of my panic attacks as a child. I was always being told, not always, that's not accurate, but like being told by a lot of the churches that I attended that like the, that Armageddon was coming soon, that the rapture was going to happen, that right. Jesus was going to come in. I mean, and, and I've, and I've heard some people a lot smarter than me, political pundits say that you're seeing folks kind of the U S kind of creating policy that creates a mishmash or a quagmire in mm-hmm. the Middle East because if G- if if Jesus when Jesus in huge air quotes uh, returns 
it's going to be somewhere in like the Middle East, right? And yeah. and so a a Middle East quagmire is for people who believe in end times. That's not a bad thing. Like, no, it's a necessary thing that has to happen in order to usher right. in Jesus' I mean, return, according which, to them. <laughs> um, yeah, it's <clears throat> that was that was terrifying as a young person. Um, mm-hmm. Also, because it felt very. these older members of churches telling me like an 11 or 12 year old that I should be so excited that Jesus was coming back soon felt so insulting. And like, I remember just being in middle school and being like, you, you are middle age. Like you have lived like (laughs) exponentially more years on this earth. Like you, you have gotten to have sex. Like you have gotten to have all of these life experiences. Don't tell me I'm supposed to be excited to be like raptured into the air tomorrow. Like I want to go to prom. Right. Um, that's how I felt. Yeah. That was uh, very appropriate. All right. So we are nearing the end. Yeah. Yeah. One more question. Because yeah. We have two minutes. So let me just say this. So um, as somebody who uh, the three of us kind of experienced some similar stuff. So as somebody who is very vocally atheist and very anti-religion and very anti-God, uh, and uh, I have actually been pretty much cut from all members of my family. So I'm just wondering if that's something that. Yeah, I'm. I have a a very good relationship with my family. Um, the vast majority of my family are still devout Christians. They we have never had a formal conversation about how my beliefs have changed. And it seems to be something that we have just kind of decided we're not going to talk about. I don't know if that is the necessarily the healthiest thing for us, but it is like it's where it is right now. Um, and and it is really hard from my end. I feel like that's a very a common um, a really big common pain point for people who have left Christianity is it feels like an incredible, it feels like an enormous burden to be the person that goes to the people you love and tells them information that you know is going to make them think that they're going to be separated from you for all eternity. Whether or not you believe that to be true anymore, you know in their minds this is going to create a narrative that you can't walk back, that you can't come back from, and it's going to cause them an untold amount of pain. And it shouldn't be about that because it's my, it's like your life, but you feel you're, you're an empathetic person. You don't want to make people you love feel that way. And so those conversations can be incredibly difficult to have. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And, and, and I think, you know, 